You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. This is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast and our first live program back on 2023. So very nice to be back. It's raining and it's cold outside and you'd think it was summer in Melbourne, but maybe that's just par for the course. It was very, very cold, very hot. Then very cold. <laughs> who, who knows? Who knows? Anyway, t- uh, in the program today, we're going to kick off with uh, a chat I had with uh, Richard Bell. He's an activist artist, uh, Indigenous man. Uh, a film's just come out called You Can Go Now. It's made by Larissa Berendt and it focuses on Richard Bell's life but also the struggle. Uh, it's on now at the Nova and it's uh, or probably on in other places but it's really worth catching. So we have a little chat with Richard Bell. Um, we go on to sad news from uh, uh, the Refugee Action Coalition. Uh, they have uh, alerted uh, the world that another Iraqi immigration detainee in his 30s uh, was found hanging in Hume, Hume Compound, Villawood. We're going to in- look at uh, what's going on for uh, the detainees in uh, these uh, prisons for refugees uh, and this is a very sad another moment of sadness in this terrible uh, story uh, well it's not a story it's a terrible fate for some people who have come to Australia asking for uh, the hand of friendship uh, we move on to uh, Jerome Small Jerome is a, a socialist a socialist alternative who uh, did r- rather well in the uh, last uh, Victorian uh, election. Uh, it we're going to have a discussion around uh, uh, parliamentary democracy uh, and uh, the socialist alternatives um, uh, efforts in that regard. Uh, as uh, we hear that uh, in America, uh, not not affiliated these uh, organisations, but the same name or socialist alternative member in uh, America, Kashama Sawant, who's a bit of a, uh, a poster child, who uh, has been sitting on the uh, City Council of Seattle in Washington for a decade, and they've just put out a release saying that uh, to rebuild the class struggle in America... Uh, They're going to step out of that sphere and uh, create a new political uh, force that is um, focused on uh, the... uh, the needs of the working class in a more direct way. So uh, we're going to have a bit of a chat around those issues uh, with uh, Jerome Small. Uh, 
This is the week that was, uh, is back. Fantastic. Kevin has uh, taken off his uh, holiday shoes and uh, has given us a, a larger slice of satire for the first program of the year because there's so many things to feast on. We go to Amy Colton, who's from Extinction Rebellion. They've been... Uh, uh, there's been uh, demonstrations or uh, protests, anti-logging protests in the Wombat State Forests over last week. So we're going to find out what happened. And uh, just to end, we're going to have a little piece from a larger webinar f- called Decolonising Gender. It's absolutely fascinating uh, webinar uh, that had speakers from all over the world. Uh, I will put up on the podcast the links to the webinar so you can hear more of those voices because it's from Indigenous people who are queer people uh, and they're talking about uh, their experiences and their their de- their work decolonising gender, which is an absolutely fascinating discussion, but of course a real experience for people. Uh, And uh, so before we get on, a few messages. Peru's Indigenous president has been overthrown. Support the uprising to protect land and water and fight for a new Peru. Come to our fundraiser, Peruvian food, music and culture, featuring Melbourne's own Amazonian cumbia band, Chicha Yeye, Lockdown Studios, 329 Johnson Street, Abbotsford, Saturday 4th of February at 8pm. Find us on Facebook, search Latin Revolution Peru. El momento es ahora. A 3CR Supporter. Tune in to 3CR Victoria's Pride Street Party Broadcast, a four-hour special event on Sunday, the 12th of February, from 12 to 4 p.m. We'll be broadcasting out on the street and featuring the voices of 3CR's queer programmers and guests including Out of the Pan, In Your Face, PX Fano and Queer in the Air, on topics that focus on queer pride and ongoing advocacy for LGBTIQA plus people. Listen to the broadcast on air or live from the corner of Smith and Mason Streets in Fitzroy. For more details, head to 3cr.org.au forward slash 3CR Pride Party 2023. You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR, your community radio station. And as I said, we're going to have a listen to a chat I had with uh, Richard Bell, the artist, activist, Indigenous man. Uh, that uh, is the centrepiece of a film called You Can Go Now that was uh, made by Larissa Berendt uh, and uh, is now showing at cinemas. Uh, we'll start off with a clip from Madman that is distributing the film and then we'll go on to the chat. How do you describe Richard Bell? He has a passion for art, but he has a love for protest. I'm an activist masquerading as an artist. He really has that political edge to his art. He's going to prod you and he's going to put a hot needle on and it's going to hit the nerve. There's two types of Richard Bells. There's Richie and there's a Richard. He's actually very sensitive and that fierce intelligence comes from what he's endured. Had my home bulldozed when I was 14, and that pretty much shaped me 
when I was politicised here in Redfern. It was such an ingenious protest. These four young men turning up to the lawns of Parliament House with nothing but placards and a beach umbrella. And it made the greatest statement we ever made. Aboriginal art has become a commodity. It's not controlled by Aboriginal people. Why can't an art movement arise and be separate from, but equal to, Western art? We've been able to create a space for disenfranchised voices. Perhaps one of the most important Australian artworks of all time. He has captivated the world, basically, but not Australians. And the young kids coming through, to know that they've got heroes embedded in the past of this country, and that's where they can draw their strength from. He paints what we think. He paints for us. So um, it was a, a great uh, honour to see your film. Um, you can leave now. I, I, tell me, uh, did uh, Larissa Brent come to you with the idea of doing this film or was this an extension of uh, your artistic activism? <laughs> um, that, uh, no, it's, it's, a, it's a bit more convoluted than that. It's, like um, I'm, I'm interested in filmmaking. Like, and um, 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 but I want to be able to to make them myself. Myself, you know, like, uh, so um, to do that, you know, you have to have these credits. So, you know, like, um, uh, apparently, th this um, idea of, of making this documentary. Um, it was quite appealing to some people, you know, in in the film industry, and um, well, I could get some um, credits out of it. So I thought, yeah, okay, I'll do that because, yeah, sort of. Um, I that was that was the main reason why why I sort of allowed it to happen. Right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you, you, like you said, you've had experience uh, exploring fil with film, haven't you? Yeah. 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 I, I'm, I'm learning about film on the go. You know, like, um, like I did with with art. I, I, I learnt, you know, like, um, while making. Yeah. So I was self taught, and I want to do something similar. You know, like, uh, with film. You know, like only only with film, it's. It's a much bigger thing. You're like, uh, it's a collaboration. You're like, uh, there were so many people you're like, uh, to, to make a film. Yeah. You're going to be part of a team. Well, I was, I'm, radio for me is a little bit, uh, I, I recognised a whole range of things about what you were doing. I mean, on a different level, of course, but uh, it's a, a medium of expression uh, because of things yeah. you want to say. Um, and uh, you uh, learnt, um, used art as a direct uh, message delivery system uh, from the politics, your, the politics that you need. Well, the voice gave you voice, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah, well, um, it, it took, um, you know, art into um, different areas that you're like of, of, of our society, you know, like, um, 
um, this was a way to you know to to get the message back to the you know to the ruling class like, um, uh, uh, and that was one of the the main uh, reasons the main reason I did it was so that you know our own people would know about um, the discussions and that sort of thing and what um, and what um, Aboriginal people had been thinking. You know, of these issues, you know, from, for decades, uh, actually. You know, so, and it's very important that uh, the young people learn about these histories because they're not going to get taught you know, these things in you know, the, the school system. You know, like the colonisers are not going to tell, <laughs> tell the history of their colonisation, you know, so, sort of thing. So, um, well, I, I was just listening to something that uh, the Victorian... Aboriginal Legal Service had on, and uh, they were talking about things like uh, um, stop stop this glorification of colonialisation, like you know, yeah. glorifying it. And I, I was really fascinated by something you said about the tin shed you guys lived in, that your yeah. that your stepfather built it without any nails. I was so impressed. Yeah, yeah. Oh well. They just used wire. Yeah, you know, that's, and, that's you know, and threaded it through the tin. You know, um, it was much stronger than nails. Like uh, so, you know, um, if those things didn't didn't blow away. <laughs> so, um, and they bulldozed that place. So they would have, you know, had to you know, use the full force for sure. Yeah. So, but it, but it's the business about manipulating the environment. That's what you do with your art. I was, it's a, but you also you're very courageous. That's the other thing that we're talking about. This idea of um, not not getting uh, caught up in the colonial message and actually saying what it is that Aboriginal people have been wanting to say. With you know like. It's like uh, the thing about, um, sorry to be impolite, I, I'm sorry I, I, I live in a country of racists, you know. It, 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 <laughs> it's that, that humour, that's my point. It's the humour that does it. Yeah, well, that, that, was, that was something that I saw on, on, a, um, uh, on a Gary Foley T-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> you know, from a protest, you know, like, um, back in the 70s, you know, like, uh, so... But yeah, look, um, a lot of look, a lot of my my work, you know, like, um, is uh, reflects you know the the opinions um, of um, the old Black Power movement. You know, like that, that's uh, I, I was politicised here, in, you know, in Sydney and Redfern, you know, like um, in the seventies, you know, like, uh, and. Like, well, that's that's what you see in my work is is that that kind of thinking, you know, sort of like a, a black nationalist um, approach to to um, our circumstances. So I've I've clung to those ideas, you know, like uh, you know, since. So. Can you tell me a little bit about? Uh... The rise and rise, basically, of black art uh, that you're part of, because the art scene 
uh, is about money uh, and it's owned by quite uh, the difference between art and capital is quite st stark you know it, it, it's not an easy journey um, to gain and, recognition and to gain recognition oh my god um, well I'm well I make, I make political art you know, like and, and, and I say that I make political art um, um, political art is makes up just four percent of the entire art market right so um and that's why you see a lot of um, of contemporary artists you know, like who will will say that they that they don't make political art <laughs> whereas you're like oh, I, I just I just couldn't give a fuck. I just say, okay, well, um, I make political art. That's what I do. Like, um, if it's um, four, if the art market's only four percent, well, like, um, um, it's much easier to grow that four percent than it is to grow the ninety-six percent. So. Well, one of my sisters is a, a printmaker, and uh, she told me once that um, some people that were interested in her work. They would say they want them to be this size. It's just yeah, yeah. the size. And I remember going to um, a pro arts place in the desert, and uh, a person said, "Oh, how much is that piece of art?" And the person didn't have a sign on it, so they turned it around and said, "Oh, it's the same size as that one, so it must be the same price." <laughs> yeah, yeah, but that's you know, it's it's. Well, art's not real estate. Like, uh, um, real estate you can measure in size. You know, like, um, doesn't it's not really relevant. You know? But uh, I've got to say that I like making big. I like making big works. You know, like, uh, you know, like I want them to be life size sort of thing. So, um, so tell me, in relation to uh, making the film. I mean, it's a beautifully made film um, and it shows uh, Redfern really uh, interestingly because uh, I know I'm old enough to know. I mean, I, I'm not Curie, but, so, but I, I've been aware of what's been going on for a long time. But um, right. it's uh, ne uh, neat the way it uh, curates the uh, and it's got the footage of the times. It must have been quite compelling for you to see all, all the people. The people there that you recognise, uh, real people. Yeah. Well, I'm, <laughs> I, I got to admit, I, I haven't seen, I haven't seen any of that um, that old footage. Like, so um, they must have you know, dredged far and wide to get that. <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought too. And also, um, so did they sit down with you to tell the story that they were going to tell? How did it get? Developed. How did how did you fit oh, into all that? Oh, gee, I don't know. You're, like, you're asking the wrong person. You should be asking Larissa. Now, um, so how did you experience that, it then? How did you experience it? Because it's about your life. It's she's such a great filmmaker. I mean, she made that fantastic film about Marilinga, which was just so yeah. breathtaking. Now this one here is is breathtaking too because it shuffles through like cards your life, and it's just so um, expert. 
as well as so uh you're so funny you're a funny man you know like that's in well, hilarious well, i find you really well, funny well the humor is such a big part of aboriginal life um i that's all I can say. You know, like, um, really, you know, like it's it's like we have to laugh. You know, like otherwise, you know, like uh, it would be tragic. You know, like uh, if we didn't have laughter, you know, like uh, looking at uh, at what's happened to us. You know, like we've lost a whole continent. You know, like um, the wealth of this land has been you know, you know just plundered from us. You know. Um, non-stop you know like uh, for more than two centuries you know, like it's oh, it's um mind-blowingly tragic you know that the, this set of circumstances right here in front of us you know, like and and we are nailed to the bottom of of you know the society here you know like every single load of boat people that's come here has slotted in directly above us, below everybody else, you know, below the first fleet, the second fleet, the third fleet, below the, you know, the, the migrants after the war, World War Two, you know, like uh, the World War One, World War Two, the Vietnam War, you know, like um, the wars, you know, like in Africa, you know, the wars in South America, that all, you know, all these people who've come here, all of them slot in above us. We're, you know, like, and this is this is why we're in this situation, you know, like, uh, that, that we're in, you know, like, um, and these people, you know, they have as their national day, you know, the arrival of their first fleet of colonizers, you know, how, you know, like, uh, it's, it's unbelievably hurtful, you know, doing that and maintaining that. You know, like and maintaining, you know, that that it must never be changed. Just pretty shocking. Oh, it's, uh... Yeah, no, it's it's it's. Uh... The only only dream I want, the only only dream I have. In the morning when I wake up, I feel you in my.
You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast here on 3CR and we've got Ian Ringdall from uh, the uh, Refugee Action Coalition on the line. G'day Ian, how are you? Yeah, good Annie, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Now, there's very sad news uh, coming out of the uh, Villawood Detention Centre on uh, the 29th of January. It was a Sunday. Uh, Can you sort of give my listeners some understanding of uh, what happened? Yeah, well, look, you know, tragically, but not surprisingly, there was yet another, you know, suicide in the Villawood you know, detention centre, and, uh, you know, Jaffa was an Iraqi uh, refugee, was uh, found uh, hanging in his room, you know, on the, you know, on the 29th of January, um, just uh, after being... He's been in detention a while, from 2018, uh, is uh, most recently in Villawood from 2018 to, you know, 2022, but uh, tragically, um, detention has taken yet another life. And he's a young man too, 30s. Uh, tell me, uh, the background, although it's still sketchy, is that he was requesting to be moved from the place because there were some uh, issues uh, amongst uh, detainees. Yeah, look, absolutely. And I mean, this is something which is, uh, you know, increasingly a feature of the, you know, detention centres. Um, it has been, a, you know, a long time and there's been issues about, you know, the you know, 501s, people who come, you know, into into jail. Um, I'm sorry, into detention from, you know, from jail. Um, so anyway, it's not surprising that these tensions happen from, you know, from time to time. And there are issues inside the detention centre like there are inside, you know, prisons. But, uh, you know, Jaffa had been requesting to be moved. Uh, there had been there had been tensions, you know, that uh, you know had emerged over the over the last uh, last few weeks. Um, had made numerous requests, you know, to be moved, as we you know know frequently frequently happens. But uh, nothing had nothing had been done. Um, and in fact, I think there's sort of a an unspoken policy really that the detention management actually doesn't mind those tensions. It you know keeps uh, you know people you know distracted, you know divided, um, and you know they they. For any, for whatever reason, they didn't move uh, Jaffa. There was another fight on that uh, Saturday, and then um, sometime after ten o'clock on the Saturday night, uh, he's uh, taken his life. So, I mean, this is actually reminiscent of uh, what happened in uh, Dame Phyllis Frost uh, uh, de- uh, jail uh, with uh, death in custody, where people were calling for help, but uh, they were ignored because it's actually part of a systemic approach to uh, inmate um, management. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's I think that's right. I mean, there's an obvious issue. Everyone's aware of it. I mean, the detention centres are small places. The guards are all over the place. Uh, people know when there's you know when there's tensions, and in any case, um, when there's uh, when there's a request, you know, from time to time, uh, to, you know, to be moved, uh, the sensible thing is to is to move them. Yeah, yeah, and uh, it, it's got a very chilling uh, feeling that uh, people are throwaway people, right? Yeah, well, they're they're they're, they're, uh, they're, they're fodder. Yeah, they're really for you know for Circo, it's fodder which keeps them making millions out of the uh, detention uh, regime. Uh, the government's got a completely contemptuous attitude to anyone who is in uh, the in, is in immigration detention. They're they're an underclass. They're they're less than human. Uh, so it um, it doesn't really matter. 
Um, the uh, To explain to people what Section 501 is about, now this is a really interesting development in the detention centres which uh, was uh, brought to the fore by the Morrison government. Yeah, yeah. Um, the... Um the section section 501 has been a long standing section of the, the immigration the migration act and it gives the power for the government to actually cancel cancel visas now what's happened most recently because of the Morrison government in 2014 they actually introduced a section of, of mandatory cancellation so it meant that anybody who was uh, sentenced uh, to who was sentenced uh, for 12 months so 12 months or more their they were, their visas were automatically cancelled now section 501 is in anyone's mind is a completely discriminatory you know clause because it can only be used against against non-citizens uh, anyone else goes, does their time, you know, in prison. Uh, they they come out. They can get on. They can get on with their lives, and uh, you know, as, as best they, you know, as best they can. But Section 501 means that people who go into the prison system uh, come don't come out. <laughs> they come out into immigration, you know, detention in those circumstances, and sometimes, uh, very often, actually, do longer time in immigration detention than what they've done for any crime that they've been punished by the criminal justice system. What's worse is actually the the section, one of the sections of the 501 clause, gives them, the minister the power to cancel on character grounds. And so, you know, people who may not have even committed a crime, we've seen plenty of cases where people have been charged um, but those charges have been uh, dismissed or dropped, but nonetheless they remain in immigration detention because uh, the minister uh, insists uh, that uh, this person is of bad, you know, bad character and therefore their visa remains cancelled. So it's a, it's an insidious uh, section of the Migration Act, um, but that's what's happening. Uh, uh, but it also gathers up people who have been here all their lives. Well, that's right, because they are non-citizens. So you've got people who have been here when they were brought here when they were one or two or three, um, and but because they've uh, not been not been born here, then they're they're um, not non-citizens. Uh, you know, we saw the famous case of what's well, about 15, 16 years ago, where Liberal government deported a, a Serbian who was came when he was two. Uh, he ended up homeless on the you know, streets in Serbia, and in that in that instance, we were actually able to get him back. But that's exactly the that's exactly the situation that's created. I mean, uh, only last week uh, there was a, a, sim- a similar case with a New Zealander who was sent back uh, to New, New Zealand. Most people who come here, as New Zealanders, think they're permanent uh, residents and they've got some right to stay. But actually, there's a it's a visa arrangement which allows them to uh, to come. From New Zealand uh, to Australia, and those visas can be cancelled. He was brought here when he was two. No family in New Zealand. He's now he's now you know back in <laughs> you know, back in back in New Zealand. Oh, so at least at least people speak the same language, I suppose. Um, yes. <laughs> well, yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. 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 But uh, the. Uh, but it also uh, indicates that there's a, an interesting mix of people who are in the detention centres. Yeah, yes, yes. There is a there is an, an interesting mix, but and uh, 
which creates its own issues. You know, people, you know, shoved into a situation where, unlike the jail system, they've got no idea when they are coming out. The capacity to actually get out of immigration detention is not like, not like jail. It's a, it's an in, it's an indefinite detention uh, for many. It's a life sentence, in for you know potentially a life sentence because people who, like like uh, Jaffa, is an Iraqi refugee. Uh, he can't be sent back to Iraq, uh, but the laws, the laws at the moment, uh, allow the government to keep someone in, indefinitely in detention. Uh, so you can be a refugee, uh, not be able to be sent back to your country, but have no right to live in Australia either. Uh, so you do find that people, for actually, you know, relatively trivial uh, crimes, uh, end up doing times that people associated with only the most, you know, serious, you know, <laughs> criminal, you know, criminal offences. So. It's not, ju- it's not just that you get an interesting you know, collection because increasingly the detention centres are the, are the jails. People are coming out of the, out of the jails into the detention centres uh, with less rights, less oversight, less governance, less activity, less po- hope for any possible you know, secure future on the, on the outside. They see their families fall apart. On the outside, they fall apart you know, in, inside. I think the reality is that the... The detention centres. There is no reason for immigration detention. There is no reason for Section, you know, 501. It really, it should be repealed. And uh, the pathetic moves that the government has made this year, with the um, this week, with the, uh, the slight changes in the 501, you know, regulations are mi- minuscule and you know. Well, I don't want to say completely. Well, almost, they're almost completely meaningless. Actually, you know, we've gone from you know consideration of family connections with you know with Australia being a secondary consideration to a primary consideration. You know, that's it. Let's hope. Let's hope that the people who are over, overseeing the regulation will you know see it something something more you know substantial. But on the you know on paper, you know, it doesn't look like much shift at all. Yeah, but uh, you'd be depriving Circo of uh, millions of dollars. Yes, that's right. We'd be depriving Circo millions of dollars. Uh, we'd be saving the taxpayer millions of dollars. On the other hand, but I think more to the point, uh, we'd be actually taking a step to uh, recognise the human rights of, uh, of people uh, who, you know, who said it, even in normal. Westminster criminal justice system people think about like you do the crime you do the time that's not how it works for you know non-citizens so it's a it's a racist and discriminatory section of the you know, the migration act so it's a it's a scar really which you know runs you know across the criminal justice system and across the immigration system it's a scar that really runs across the whole of Australian society because like the attitude to you know to boat arrivals you know the people who come here seeking seeking asylum 501 section 501 is really a reflection of the you know of the same of the same of the same thing you know people who are non-citizens can be treated as less than as less than human so it's not just a question of refugee rights i think it's a fundamental recognition of of you know of human rights uh, that there should not be a discriminatory section which allows allows you know the migration act or the you know the the immigration system to you know to treat people as um, you know less you know with uh, as having you know less rights than citizens just uh, to finish up and on, on a very sobering note, what happens for Jaffa? Does he get bar- buried in the soil here or does he uh, go back to his homeland in a box? Mm. Look, uh, in, in Jaffa's case, he, there is family in Australia and he, he will be, he'll be buried 
yeah, in Australia. In very difficult circumstances, uh, people are going to have to, you know, kind of raise the money, and sometimes it's very hard to get that out of the Australian government, even harder when it requires the repatriation, uh, you know, of someone's, you know, someone's body. Um, but uh, yeah, but Jaffa, Jaffa will be, you know, will be, you know, buried in Sydney. So, Ian, um, what can people do if they wish to be part of a positive change? Well, you know, I'm from the Refugee Action Coalition. There's a Refugee Action Collective in uh, in Melbourne. I know they organise organising things, um, you know, about 501s, about the the uh, on, you know ongoing detention of people in the you know Park Hotel. Um, and in particular, I think we're all building for you know for Palm Sunday you know, this you know this year. Uh, so it'll be the second uh, of April. Uh, and there'll be a demonstration in in uh, Melbourne, like there will be in many other cities, uh, you know, across Australia. That's certainly going to be one opportunity for people to, you know, hit hit the streets with other refugee supporters to say we need to get rid of detention, we need to get rid of, you know, Section 501. But get in touch with the Refugee Action, you know, collective in in Melbourne. They have weekly meetings on um, uh, Monday nights, and um, they'd be very very happy to happy to see people. See people there. We've, uh, it's made a big difference over the years uh, in terms of fighting back and pushing back the government's um, inhumane policies. Uh, sometimes we see a lot more to do than what we've than what we've gained. But um, you know, without those voices uh, in the uh, you know in the streets uh, and uh, providing some ways that the voices who are inside the detention centres actually can you know talk to the you know talk to the media and explain the circumstances of their situation it's beginning a beginning of that awareness so um yeah see the refugee action collective we'll see everyone on the you know, sunday the 2nd of april thanks ian thanks for talking to us okay thanks very much Annie. Uh, and if uh, that interview has actually raised some um, disturbing issues for you, you can call Lifeline 13 11 14, Suicide Help for First Nations People, 13 71. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, and we've just been speaking to Ian Rontol from the Refugee Action Collective Co- Coalition. Yeah.
Water Festival is back in 2023 with two days of summer fun, Saturday 18th and Sunday 19th of February. Saturday kicks off with a celebration of First Peoples artists, including Christine Arnu, Jem Casadeli, Dean Brady, and more. On Sunday, the party takes to the St Kilda streets with hoodoo gurus, Yothu Yindi, Confidence Man, and heaps more. Free and all ages, see the program at stkildafestival.com.au. St Kilda Festival is a 3CR supporter. You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR, your community radio station. And we've got Jerem Small on the line. G'day, Jerem. How are you? Yeah, good. How are you doing, Annie? And g'day to you and everyone at 3CR. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we're we're ringing you because we want to have a chat with you about your success as a socialist alternative candidate in the last Victorian election. That was a very interesting decision to uh, go for... uh, uh, that particular um, effort, wasn't it, amongst it socialist was, alternatives? Yes, it's, it's definitely something pretty new to me and to uh, well, and to other members of socialist alternative. Of course, the um, the we ran with Victorian socialists, which you know socialist alternative is heavily involved in. But there's plenty of people, like the majority of our members, uh, you know, would have no particular affiliation with a group. Um, we're a revolutionary group, but you don't have to be a revolutionary to um, be part of Victorian Socialist or campaign with us or vote for us. You just, um, you think that in general, um, there should be um, a stronger socialist current in Australian political life. You can be an active part of Victorian Socialist. And um, across Victoria, more, more than 50,000 people, more than 52,000 people actually voted for Victorian Socialist in the upper house. And you'd have to go back... I think to 1944 to find a higher vote for uh, socialist candidates to the left of Labor in the state of Victoria. Um, so, yeah, it, it's pretty remarkable, um, really. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is remarkable. I, I went through the figures and uh, it showed that there was quite a uh, considered attempt to get socialists into the Senate to have an effect on uh, the conversation Uh, and it uh, defeated the um, impulse for uh, more reactionary right-wing parties, uh, which is interesting. Yeah, I mean, well, uh, I guess there's two parts of it. I mean, there was a substantial right-wing vote, um, especially in some of the outer suburban areas where, um, uh, you know, a motley collection of scientific term I would use is far-right freaks, ranging from Pauline Hanson's One Nation to Clive Palmer's United Australia, the Freedom Party Family First. Um, If you combine all of them, their upper house vote was uh, actually pretty substantial, um, you know, up to 10% in some places, but because of the fractured nature of their vote, they didn't end up with all of these seats. Um, But, uh, you know, I think there definitely is a problem there, and I don't want to downplay it. Um, in in northern metro, uh, the uh, well, they call themselves the uh, the Democratic Labor Party. They appear on the ballot paper as Labor DLP. Yeah, um, they put did them quite very well. Firmly, yeah, put them very firmly in the category of far right freaks. People might be familiar with Bernie Finn, who was too extreme even for the Liberal Party. He's the former member for uh, Western Metro in the Upper House. 
Spiegel expelled from the Liberal Party ran as Labor DLP. He didn't win, but his good mate Adam Somirek, who uh, got chucked out of the Labor Party for uh, the most blatant branch stacking that you can imagine, um, he ended up, uh, well, yeah, uh, pipping the left at the post um, in Northern Metro. So he ended up with about 300 primary votes more than me. He got better preference flows, partly from other far-right parties, but also, um, you know, there's a, a if you voted for the Companion Animals and Pets Party, that effectively ended up being a vote for Adam Somirek. If you voted for the Health Australia Party, that effectively ended up being a vote for Adam Somirek. So, anyway, you know, he got my votes, so I can't complain too much. But no, no, but that's Adam, an interesting analysis, yeah, that splintering yeah. of uh, groups. I was wondering about who who were running all those different uh, uh, groups of people because they have yeah. these benign names, but uh, yeah. unless you actually drill down, you can't tell who's actually running them. That's right, and it's actually pretty hard to drill down. So uh, unless you, you know, unless you do a bunch of research about where the preferences are actually going, um, yeah, you can end up with some pretty strange results. I've got to say though, that wasn't the only reason that Adam Somirek won. Uh, the right vote did go up and return to a, a situation where there's sort of broadly speaking, three on the progressive side in Northern Metro. Uh, I'm sure you'd be aware the Victorian Upper House is elected on a system of multi-member electorates, so Melbourne's divided into a series of electorates in Northern Metro where I was running. Uh, well, there's five seats and two went to Labor, one went to Greens, one went to Liberal. That fifth seat has been a bit of a lucky dip. Um, over the last, you know, 10 or so years, Fiona Patton, of course, had that seat for a couple of elections, but Adam Somirek got ahead of both uh, both her and myself. Out of 23 parties, though, like it was a real Melbourne cut field running in the, um, the upper house, out of 23 parties running, um, I ended up coming fifth, so on primary votes. So Labor, Liberal, Greens, and then Adam Somirek was, I think, about 300 votes ahead, which is pretty remarkable for a socialist electoral effort in Australia in 2020, well, in any era, actually, for the last uh, period of time. And as well as that, uh, in the West, uh, uh, Liz Walsh from Victorian Socialists actually got closer than me to getting elected at the crucial split with uh, legalised cannabis, ended up with a fifth seat in the West. Um, and at the crucial split, um, Liz was, I think, about 1,800 votes behind legalised cannabis um, in an electorate of... Um, God, well, I don't know. I could, you know, the, the, the legalised cannabis people got 16,000 primary votes. So, you know, to, to be 1,800 votes behind on preferences... We're definitely in the mix for a seat, um, and there's a bunch of really uh, impressive results in the lower house. Out of everyone who cast a vote in the lower house in the seat of Footscray, we got 9.3%. We got um, 8% in the state seat of Broadmeadows. So wow. 8% of every That's single great. person who voted um, voted socialist um, in the West, like places which have actually never had a socialist campaign before. I'd, I'd be pretty confident in saying that Koroit, um, which is sort of out towards Melton, um, has never had a socialist campaign before. Uh, we got 6.8% of the vote, 5.9% in Laverton, um, you know, 8% in Brunswick. I could go through the whole list, but for a pretty small group of, of upstarts with not a lot, by the way, of resources, but a lot of zeal and the ability to 
look people in the eye and say, we can do better than this. It's just crazy that the billionaires in this country have doubled their money in a couple of years. So it was according to Oxfam's report last year. We haven't doubled aged care or hospitals or health or anything else. We can do better than this. It's just outrageous. And we're not pretending that vote for us and we can click our fingers and solve every problem. But we're serious about organising the sort of campaigns and the sort of movement that can. And frankly, we're serious about talking about humanity being able to do better than the dog-eat-dog sort of system which is going around at the moment. So pretty encouraging results for that sort of campaign. Well, uh, well, they just uh, gave out the uh, information about the uh, returns for Shell, uh, but having a profit greater than it's ever had for 115 years. Now, this is a company that's actively destroying the environment. <laughs> it's yeah, and you'd see a string of profits like that from international companies like Shell and uh, you know Mobile Exxon and, she- and Chevron and so on. But but it's um, that I'm... sort of. Uh, Who's who's running things for whose benefit? And uh, it's interesting that you were able to get this across to people. Yeah, it's like, and I think it shows that if if you can have a credible election campaign of of you know a big enough size, and we worked incredibly hard, uh, like we knocked on one hundred ninety thousand doors. We you know we had more than seven hundred. Uh, events, whether that's stalls or meetings or forums or door knocks or, or you name it. Um, uh, you know, we've got a lot of yard signs up. So we, you know, we uh, we presented a credible alternative. It wasn't just a name on a ballot paper that no one had heard of. It was yeah. like, oh, yeah, they knocked on my neighbour's door. Oh, yeah, my neighbour's got a, a yard sign. Or, oh, yeah, you know, I got a leaflet in the street. Um, and when you, you know, put some sort of fighting alternative based on a, a basic socialist platform in front of people. Um, pretty great. And some booths, like we got we got one in five votes in the uh, the, the booth uh, in Dallas, uh, the, the uphill uh-huh. booth. That's really uh, that's interesting. building on some decent results that we've got there in the past in the Broadmeadows area. But um, out in Coroit, we got, I think, 17.5% at Kings Park, 15% on the booth at, at Deer Park, um, uh, you know, three booths in Footscray where we got a, a vote of, of, of 20% or thereabouts. So, um, yeah. So, so Jerem, Jerem yeah. how, I mean, obviously the socialists are fighting to win. It's not just to yep. proselytise, it's to win. Uh, can you tell me uh, it, the next time round, is there going to be a further push and uh, is there going to be a uh, real strategic thought around preferences? There, there definitely will be. Um, like Victorian socialists will definitely be running in the next state election and, um, you know, look out for us in, in any sort of contest before then as well. We also plan to, uh, like, I mean, partly it was COVID and partly, you know, we were a bit new to it all, so... Uh, Victorian socialists after the 2018 state and 2019 federal election didn't do as much as what we would have liked. We want to. We're pretty conscious that we want to um, fix that this time around. So we've already had, like you know, we want socialism, and to some extent we've already achieved it to be, just be part of the political mix in Australia to normalise the fact that there's there's a socialist party out there. So part of that is having an ongoing life. So we've got actually got organising meetings coming up this week 
um, that people can find on our Facebook page just talking about what we can do to keep things ticking over, you know, whether that's street stalls, involvement in campaigns, contingents at rallies. We had a, a good show at the um, the Invasion Day rally, for instance. Um, we've already had a forum with the Indigenous Socialist Oscar, Oscar Martin in Footscray and up in Coburg. So we're, we're pretty keen to keep things ticking over. Um yeah, and we'll see what position we're in. Uh, hopefully, an even stronger position next time around. And we, we're pretty serious about rebuilding a socialist movement in this country. We think that socialist socialists have a lot to contribute and have contributed a lot over many years to particular campaigns, to rebuilding unions, um, to you know standing up against all of the injustices of the world, and to rebuilding a movement that has as its you know as its very clear aim actually. <laughs> socialism. Now that's the big goal. There's a, a million little steps towards that and we think that getting someone into parliament would be one of those steps that would raise the profile and credibility of the socialist movement in this country and help to kick things along in all sorts of ways. Thank you very much for talking to us, Jerem. And I really am annoyed that you didn't get in. <laughs> I'd have loved well, that. And Liz as well. To turn all that annoyance uh, in, yeah, definitely, uh, you know, we'll need all the help we can get. Obviously, in the state election in four years, let multi-member electorates, you know, give us the, the, the best chance of, of getting someone in and shaking politics up. But also, uh, you know, in the many weeks and months and years before then, we, we don't just want to pop up every four years and say, hey, remember us. Yeah, uh, we yeah, want exactly. to be part of people's, you know, weekly and monthly lives. So check it. Uh, our, face, uh, our website is, is there. It's a little bit out of date. We're sort of scrambling to get moving again. Um, but you can check our Facebook or Twitter. and There's a bit happening on that about what's coming up. Thanks heaps, Annie. Thanks for the opportunity and um, cheers. Happy New Year to everyone at 3CR and see you on the streets, no doubt. Hi, I'm Monero from Fitzroy Primary School and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. A week, Solidarity Briggy Team listener, when, well, weeks since we were last on air. Weeks when, no, years. Let's start with years. The, the Copernicus Climate Change Service, a European Union body, announced the past eight years were the warmest on record, presuming, of course, there is such a thing as climate change. Reusers of the Lord Rupert of Wapping Media know the jury is still very much out on that one. But the government came up with the most brilliant lateral thinking plan to reduce our destruction of the planet with gas and coal, just in case there is such a thing, without stirring up the end of the world as we know it campaign it would stir up if it simply called for the great resource behemoths to reduce our destruction of the planet with gas and coal. Brilliant lateral thinking. Put a cap on the super, super, super duper obscene profits they have been making, reducing them to mere super duper obscene profits, and the great resource BMOS will then cry all over those super duper obscene profits that they can't possibly afford to continue exploring, developing, and providing their obscenely profitable contribution to the frying of the planet. See? What a brilliant strategy. On the other hand, an investment mob called Baron Joey said climate change, it's real when there's a quid to be made, climate change is good because having less coal mines will increase the price of coal and allow even more super, super, super duper obscene profits for those who own them. And BP for Big Polluter, which advertises its greenwashing, uh, sorry, sorry, green credentials, 
celebrated the report by announcing it will still be profiting from oil and coal and gas well beyond 2050, but no props. They will be offset by planting a tree somewhere out the back of Bali. Meanwhile, the economic perfidy of the evil unions was exposed by their attack on the oh-so-neutrally-balanced Productivity Commission, an essential in addressing slow wages growth for those unions, because caring employers keep telling us productivity is the key, proving workers are just so lazy and unproductive. Yet the bloody ACTU reckons the con mission is stacked with caring business class appointees who provide groupthink, a, a lack of balance and diversity. Yet to show its neutral independence, the con mission has recommended the power of evil unions destroying this country must be curtailed and estimates the evil, evil, evil maritime unions are costing the economy $600 million a year. What could be more balanced than that? So evil the evil unions that on one day during the break, the Troubluwazi Capitalist Review had two news stories. One, a hospitality mob called Mantle, real name, which runs restaurants and pub chains and James Squire Brewery, owing workers trillions because its human relations department approved an agreement which bound all workers, denying them of penalty rates and lots of other crippling work practices. So severe the matter has been referred to the Director of Public Prosecutions for criminal charges. And two, a story about spotless for workers facing unfair fair dismissal claims over sacked workers in an Adelaide hospital. Two stories about non-evil caring employers, yet so evil are the unions that its editorial same day declared we must act to smash the power of unions who are destroying this country and the economy. And next to that, a deeply thought through so-called think piece by a former Productivity Commission chair called Gary Banks good name for a capitalist, who says the evil unions are afraid of unbiased advice. Unbiased advice like they should be smashed. Problems up at Alice Springs have been solved by former minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect and man of the people. No, no, let's rephrase that. Man of the filthy rich people, Alexander. If Indigenous people embrace the advantages of Western lifestyles, they will reap the rewards. Brilliant. No longer dirt poor blacks, but now dirt poor blacks just like dirt poor whites who embrace the advantages of Western lifestyles. And Alexander knows all about advantage. The good old Taliban, Taliban women from university, a logical extension of their banishment from secondary school and then from working for aid organisations, well, working at all, really, other than their sole role of satisfying male heterosexual desires, following them being banned from parks and gyms and being forced to wear the full burqa with the face veil. All this from the fun, fun, fun Ministry for the Promotion of Virtue and Prevention of Vice. So obviously the problem is that the promotion of and prevention of boys know the presence of women will be an irresistible temptation for men. Therefore, men are the problem. So there's the solution. Ban men. Then women can enjoy parks and gyms and schoolyards and campuses and wear what they like. Come on, Taliban, what's wrong with a bit of lateral thinking?
Well, everything apparently, because then the Taliban, Taliban women altogether. On the great benefits of religious liberalism, the caring business class coalition supremo and would-be big supremo, Constable Peter Duffer, described the sadly lamented Cardinal George appalling as a great, you know, like, intellect. But I'm not sure that was saying much, because from where Constable Duffer's coming, everyone's a giant intellect, like you know. One of Pete's predecessors, tiny a bit more for the bosses, told us George is a saint. We recommend Tiny head up the highway to Ballarat and set them straight, explain George's godly perfection. Oh, and Pete says we need more information if we are to vote on whether we recognise the first peoples of this country as people or not. The problem for Pete here, of course, is that when you get information, you have to be able to understand it. Pete also praises the great intellect and troubler was he another sad, sad loss, serial warmonger Jim Maul and the bad guys, who knew troubler was his security depended 100% on sending train killers all over the world where the US of the UN of the US of the world ordered us to slaughter the local population and destroy their environment. Who knew spending the public purse on anything but the excitingly and increasingly lethal merchandise of the merchants of death was a waste of those funds, and more seriously, shows the government is failing in its responsibility to defend us, its only responsibility. Big Supremo Anthony Albiguzzi said train killer Jim's contribution would never be forgotten. We can only agree. The, sorry, the police are on a recruitment drive claiming applications have dropped dramatically. Unlikely, but maybe there's a bit of real humanity creeping into society. Anyway, they're going to follow up previous applicants who failed the test, which, when we think about it, indicates they must have an IQ of about one, or conversely, lots more than one. They asked me if I enjoyed framing people, and... I said no. Then they asked if I enjoyed saturating them with capsicum spray and tear gas. And I said no. So they asked if I loved tasering people, and then if I enjoyed shooting people, and then if I enjoyed bashing and kicking the shit out of goody-goody-greeny commie protesters. And? And I said no, no to all of them. Uh, So what happened? They said... I was the worst applicant they'd ever known. The, done it again, sorry, police investigated a complaint that police had capsicum sprayed a journalist during a protest and found there was no case to answer. So obviously he imagined he'd been sprayed. Over in the US, police disbanded the so-called Scorpion unit after it murdered yet another young black man, but really they had no choice. The entire unit is behind bars. Poor New South Wales Supremo Dominic Parrotbrain copped a spray over wearing a Nazi uniform, but in fairness, having been sprung, he did say he thinks it was a, a bit of a mistake. Whereas that Harry creature said his big time doll bludging brother made him do it. He remains as pure as the Virgin Mary. Meanwhile, after supporters of former Brazil big supremo Bolsonaro ran riot, US of big supremo joke uh, Biden capital told them to behave themselves. A bit of patience, he said. Surely you know our record when the people abuse democracy and elect the wrong person, the wrong government. 
Haven't you noticed Peru, for instance, getting rid of the long-haired commie? So a little bit of patience, and we'll sort out liberty, freedom, and democracy for you. In the week that was sport, Novak's Djokovic turned up and said he forgives us. Well, let's just repeat that, repeat that. Novak says he forgives us. Oh, but he can't forget. Perhaps we could forgive him if he forgets ever to come back. Playing on a site of working class history handed to the city's self-appointed elite by a socialist state government and propped up with trillions in public subsidies so the elite can enjoy a little luxurious leisure. The elite showing their appreciation by naming a court after John Kane, that rabid socialist who handed them the site of Yarrabank speakers, a political debate and the destination for years of huge May Day marches. Now politics are banned so the masses can enjoy the fun, fun, fun. So clearly, banning flags of certain countries we don't like and people wearing or waving those flags is not political. And after every game, the in-depth interviewers ask the winner to tell us how much they love playing here and how much they love us. And surprise, surprise, they all just love us. Gee! Then, of course, when they're eliminated, they can't wait to catch the first plane out to the next tournament where they'll tell them how much they love that place and love you guys. There was much national mourning led by the publicity machine which jingoistically whips up the expectation that if a player is a true blue Aussie, then we must love her or him, when a true blue Aussie who in the totally unlikable department is right up there with Novak's had a pull out. There was much national mourning led by the publicity machine which jingoistically whips up the expectation that if a player is a true blue Aussie, then we must love her him, when a true blue Aussie who in the totally unlikable department is right up there with Novak's had a pull out. So that was some relief. Still, what would we do without those expert commentators? Like when the server is at 5-4, they inform us expertly that the person is serving for the set something we'd never realise without them. While during a women's semi-final, a US of invaluable expert enlightened us with the truly in-depth, Azarenka needs this to be a game of tennis, leaving us to ponder what the hell Azarenka and or her opponent, and us for that matter, thought they were playing. Then there was the cricket expert who informed us, I think they'll be trying to put big runs on the board. <laughs> We'd never have thought of that. What will we do without them? Well, mostly watch it with the sound down, actually. Many of the filthy rich hangers-on at the tennis and those they seek to influence, like Anthony Albinguzi, were seen sitting next to tennis chair Jane Herdliker the Rich, providing oodles of luxurious freebies for the filthy rich, while in her day job as supremo of Virgin the Money Airline, she is offering oodles of poverty for workers who are complaining that a super generous 2.5% pay offer is a trifle below the inflation rate and therefore a real wage cut, just as Jane announces a huge profit showing, finally, how selfish those workers are wanting to steal that profit from the poor shareholders. Don't forget, one worker's selfish pay rise is one shareholder's smaller dividend, showing the only thing that's changed is 22 to 23. Good morning. 
Hi, I'm Ruby from Fitzroy Primary and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. And you're with Annie on Community Radio 3CR on Solidarity Breakfast and we've got Amy Carlton on the line from Wombat Action Group. G'day, how are you? I'm good, good morning Annie. Yeah, yeah, it's it's actually really cold but it's probably colder up there near Dalesford and Trentham. It is a pretty chilly morning. It's been raining for most of it. <laughs> well, you know, you've got to love the rain. Um, but you guys have been uh, uh, on out there protecting the Wombat uh, State Forest against uh, uh, logging. Tell us about what's going on. It started, uh, you put out a release on January the 30th. So uh, tell us what's been going on. Mm-hmm. Look, it's been, yeah, it's been a really busy week out in the forest. Um Things have been getting really tense ever since this salvage operation started last year and I think came to a head a little bit on Monday. We had an activist come and lock onto machinery um, from first thing in the morning and hold off the logging operation for the whole day, um, which has been a really a big move forward for the um, the community out here. Up to date, we'd, we'd sort of had a few protests and been writing a lot of letters, but... I think the yeah the general temperature out here has kicked up a little bit and um, yeah there was a full blockade on Monday. Yeah yeah well now the thing about it is is that people have the impression that uh, native forests and that the uh, wombat state forest was protected, uh, but that's not the case. Well, it is and it isn't. There is most definitely legislation that should be protecting the Wombat State Forest. I mean, for two reasons. Start, for starters, um, the Andrews government promised to make Wombat State Forest into a national park a couple of years ago, but has absolutely dragged its feet on legislation. It should already be protected. Um, the other thing is that wombat's a really thriving greater glider hotspot, which is an animal that's been in the media a lot recently. And Laws designed to protect the Greater Glider, which have shut down logging pretty much across the east of the state, are still being completely ignored in Wombat Forest. They're logging glider territory daily. Um, Is this local business doing this? No, this is Vic Forest. So this is a um, government company or corporation which is tasked with harvesting state forest and selling it mostly for wood chips. And it's under the guise of salvage logging because there's lots of language isn't there around uh, this kind of work salvage logging there is and look I guess salvage logging is is technically the right term but the way it's presented to it is is the salvage is put across to us as something to do with forest restoration when what that actually means is salvaging any commercially viable timber from the forest um, which which is questionable that you can salvage something that you didn't own in the first place given this forest was supposed to be protected. But, yeah, the whole aim of the operation is to get the logs out that they can sell. And also uh, reduce bushfire risk, a furphy, right? Absolutely. Um, particularly given some of the um, – we've had a few drone um, bits of footage come in recently and you can see there are these – Piles of still, you know, still very fresh looking wood piles of logs that they're ready to take out, which really big, heavy logs on the ground pose no fire risk in a, in a mega fire front. But all of the fine fuel load, all of the drier, small ranches and sticks and everything, they're all being left behind. And in the forest they're being left behind in, without the logs on the ground, without the understory, they're, they're drying out like tinder. So it's... You know, it's pretty clear once you get out there and look, there's a, there's a much bigger bushfire risk after big forests have been through an area. 
Yeah, because there's actually, it's about uh, intact forests are, are less fire prone. Absolutely. And then you also, you have the problem that um, once you log a forest and it starts to regrow, you get an incredibly high number of small trees growing up, which, you know, it basically looks like matchsticks for the first 50 odd years before the trees start to thin out. So we're not just causing a bushfire risk for this and next season. We're going to be creating a massive fire risk probably for the next sort of 30 to 50 years. But also there's the business about uh, overlooking the fact that uh, all these different types of logs that are uh, uh, trees, etc., things that are, are just around are actually homes for a whole range of uh, uh, animals and uh, birds. Oh, absolutely. And it's, you know, it's one thing that really points out the difference between what you and I would see as a forest and what the the so-called forestry department would see as a forest is after the salvage logging, you go in, there's literally no other plants left. Um, there's, there's trees standing, but there's no understory. So, you know, an enormous amount of animals that live on the ground, um, of the forest, um, including the brush ascagale, which is the most adorable little creature. That one actually requires fallen hollows in logs to survive, so we're completely removing their habitat. But also, also animals that would normally only live up in the trees most of the time and travel between them through the canopy, like koalas and greater gliders, they're using those logs right now as shelter from predators so that they can travel through parts of the forest that were broken up by the storm. So... So the um, local community has stepped up uh, and are fighting back, aren't they? They are, very much so. I think there's been tension building ever since this um, this logging operation started and was sold to us as this gentle, ecologically restorative process as the community started to realise what's actually happening. And we're going out and seeing moonscapes. Um, resistance has been building and I think we're at the point now where it is is so frustrating that laws are being tested in court in the east of Victoria and this logging practice is found to be illegal, yet it's having no impact in Wombat and I think that's what's really pushed people over the edge to the point where they're taking direct action. Yeah. Uh, There's going to be a rally, isn't it? I mean, uh, uh, very soon, I'm just uh, looking mm-hmm. it up, on the steps of uh, Parliament, 10am uh, on Tuesday. Do you know what it is? Yeah, yeah. So that's been a huge... Um, uh, Victorian Forest Alliance and I think Friends of the Earth have put that together as a huge statement on the first sitting day of Parliament that logging in Victoria is a massive issue on the agenda um, you know, from from every angle, it's an environmental travesty. It's an economic black hole. I mean, they declared, I think it was $52.4 million lost last year, just pulling out trees, wood chipping them and putting them carbon straight back into the atmosphere. So we're going to have a huge gathering on Tuesday um, and some really great speakers um, just to let Parliament know on their first day in that this really needs to be first on the agenda. So that's next Tuesday? That's right. 10 a.m. And... Um You'll be. Everyone should be there because it's pretty outrageous stuff. Everyone should be there. We all live on this planet. Yeah. Thanks very much for talking yeah. to us this morning, Amy. That's my pleasure, Annie. Thank you. Yeah.
told yourself, what is it you gotta say? I just heard you busting about it just the other day. You seem to have your wires crossed and you're doing it all wrong. Try to just stay focused about yourself and just be strong. Build a bridge and you'll be on your way. Fantastic Emma Donovan. Uh, we're coming to the end of the program, but before we do, I wanted to put a little snippet from a fantastic webinar. It was put together by Cultural Survival and it heard voices from around the world. They were talking to people who had contributed articles to their Cultural Survival Quarterly. And this is Chong Taronga Tena Brenna Koi Hoi. Uh, language revitalizer, and uh, this was about um, decolonize decolonizing uh, gender, uh, and uh, fascinating stuff. Okay, basically, Gangans Brian, um, I'm going to just introduce myself in what I then much later in my life learned as what is our mama's cover. So I'm going to say, Ti konske ato roja ti tage what I basically said, my name is Teroja. 
I am based in Cape Town, but Cape Town, not what the colonizers call this place, but Creek Ice is what our ancestors, our core ancestors call this place. And Gangans, thank you for this opportunity. The work that I do, and, and I think uh, I, I, I'm going to say kare, kare in Kogwe means to praise. So I want to praise all the speakers before me, because I think if there's one word that always just guides my work is this koi word called kakapusa. Kakapusa means erasure, amnesia. And being a koi person in South Africa already means that we are erased. We have a country that refuses to acknowledge that we are still here. We have a country intentional about pretending that we were all perished you know, many years ago. And then on top of that, you still have now a queer identity. And so here we end up now becoming double victims. And I'm going to say victims in, in brackets of this kakapusa. And my work is then to challenge that erasure. And Koikwe also has another uh, set of words that we use now. Hadakea means that we are here. And we are not going to leave. We never left as Khoi people, as queer people. We have never left. And we are going to be intentional, anapeka, about claiming space in spaces, in conversations where we are still not welcome. I want to say, you know, for me, my work, you know, as a Khoi queer writer has been about finding the acceptance that colonial society took from me and reclaiming my identity, re going back to the words of my ancestors, you know, understanding that we come from a people who celebrated women, that has given me so much sasa, you know, peace and comfort. And so my work continues to, I often tell people, and I think I reacted from somebody that uh, we don't uplift our work we don't ukai our work. Our work lifts us up. And so for me, I just often just tell people, I am a tutu. Hutu aun. Hutu means a disruptor. And I say this with pride, Misa, because in this country, people, queer people are not supposed to exist. Queer people, LGBT people, two-spirited people, we are not supposed to exist, but we are here. And that for me, you know, you know, there's, you know, at times people don't want that, but you know, that keeps us going to say that even if you don't want us, we are still here and we have never lived. Thank you. That was a powerful introduction, uh, Taroka. And I just want to uh, thank you. And yes, that goes back to say, you know, the name of this of this webinar is that we've always been here, and that's what we're here today to say that uh, we're not new to this. We're not an invention as many people want to believe, a Western invention. We've always been here and we will never leave. And you're right about that. And um, I'd like then to, to, to ask you and in your article, and I want to say in your article, as I was reading your article, I felt in many ways that you were telling my own story and the stories of many people, many queer people who may be watching this today, 
or may listen to it later, if they go to read your article, they will also feel identified by what you described there. So I'd like to ask you, uh, in, your, in, in your view, how did colonization and Christianity disrupt the understanding of gender and gender relations in your community? And if you could relate that to your own story, the way you lived it in, in, your, in your story. Yes, for, for me, you know, obviously Christianity and colonization was violent. It was wicked. It was, it was a complete kuvu-kuvu. Kwakuvukubu means a destruction of what was us, what was innately in us, what connected us to the land. And my journey of understanding my koi koi identity, koi koi meaning people of people, and learning our language was then to understand that we came from a people and we still come from a people that celebrated our woman. Koi koi society still is and have only ever been a matrilineal society. But we lost that because we forgot that words that we spoke for thousands of years spoke to that. And there's one word in Koikwe that I often just remind people about is Taras. Taras. Taras means woman, but Taras also means supreme leader. And when the colonizers came and Christianity came, they took those words from our mouths. They took the consciousness from our mouths, from, our, from us, forced us to believe in their Bibles and their stories that now suddenly spoke about the man being the head of the household, that the man is the person in charge. And that was completely in contradiction to what happened on this land. And for me, finding challenging you know that what we were taught to believe that now it's all about the men and realizing but hey in koi society our women have only ever been our taras and supreme leader when i discovered that you know you also then realize but if we come from women if we come from taras then being who we are means that we are anu we are perfect because mothers women they love unconditionally. What comes from them is perfect. And we were then taught by these colonizers because of the patriarchy and the sexism and the corrupt teachings in their Bible that we have to celebrate our women and our men. And suddenly when you go back and you go realize that, hey, we were never about men. We celebrated women. But then when you celebrate our woman, you also celebrate then everyone that comes from her. And if I come from a woman, you know, then I, as a queer person, I, as a person that, and, 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 and this is a story I tell people, for me now being, you know, understanding our koi identity, because koi koi means people of people. It, does, it doesn't talk about a man of man or woman of woman. It talks about people. Koi koi as an ideology, as a Christ reminds us about the humanity, that you are a person who matters, you are a person on this land. And when colonization and Christianity rooted in capitalism and theft and murder, when they brought that, they disrupted us. And for us now, it is to go back and say, what can our language teach us? Because in our language, is the ideas that guided us on these lands.
for thousands of years. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.